Hello and welcome to Stigable's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and to a special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, which is out in November 2020, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute and came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. And this week we'll be talking about one of my favourite genres, historical fiction. In my book, I write about Romola by George Eliot and The King Must Die by Mary Renault. Later on, I also write a bit about The Three Musketeers too. And my special guest this week is historian and broadcaster Susanna Lipscomb. She goes by the name 16th Century Girl on social media and is regularly on our screens as an expert on the Tudor period and beyond. Her latest book, which is really such a clever piece of research and writing, is The Voices of Neem, Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc. Uh, and it's such a, it's such an interesting book. I, I've read it. Susanna, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Stig. Lovely to be here. Uh, now, uh, the idea is we're going to do is talk about a book we love in the broad category of historical fiction. But before we get to that, uh, as a professional historian, Susanna, how much do you enjoy historical fiction? It does rather depend what it's about. So, um, so I approach historical fiction set in the Tudor period with some trepidation yep um it can be a busman's holiday uh so you know I find it sometimes either frustrating because it's like working or it can be frustrating because it's so far from history um but I do like anybody else I do find historical fiction a really good way into understanding other periods and then well at least sparking an interest in things you know so that's I do enjoy it myself are you in, are you very unforgiving of historical error I can imagine you sitting reading a book on the Tudor set in the Tudor period and and tutting <laughs> do I do I strike you as a tutting person um, I, I I just think if you're an expert on something which I'm not but I imagine if you are you would just, if, if someone, I mean, presumably you can be forgiving of small things, but if they fundamentally get something wrong, do you sort of throw the book aside and think, well, I'm not bothering with that? I think there's one thing that will make me throw the book aside, and I'm not, I'm not much given to throwing books aside, um, but I, if I were to, it would be because they impose a 21st century mindset on somebody in the past. Okay. And that's the thing that I find most difficult. I don't care about the buttons. I don't care about what they're in the clothes. The, the, none of that really bothers me that much. I mean, mildly irritating, perhaps, but if they, you know, put in their minds ideas that are really very much of our own age, then I think, well, they haven't even bothered to, to imagine themselves back into the past. Yeah. So why should I bother? And actually, um, I'm trying to work out why I find historical fiction so kind of interesting. And I think it is the fact that it, it, there's sort of similarity and difference. You're sort of taken to a time that is is visibly different to ours and has different customs and different viewpoints. But there is some thread that connects uh, you together. And actually on this podcast before, I've mentioned this quote from uh, G.M. Trevelyan, the historian. But let me just read it to you, see if you, you buy this, because it talks about the poetry of history. Well, I, I know this one is one of my favourite, but do read it because it's wonderful. See, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you weren't going to say, actually, it's a he's a terrible historian, this is a terrible quote, but let me, let me read it and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all are gone, one generation vanishing after another, gone as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghosts at Cockrow. And it's the idea that, that 
you, it's kind of humbling when you read history and you think in historical terms, you think in terms of long periods past. Uh, there's something sort of both incredibly exciting and humbling at the same time. Absolutely. And there's so much in that quote. It's just, it's just fantastic. And one thing that's been on my mind quite a lot recently is how short our lives are. Uh, I, a future book is going to be writing about the family of my great great grandparents who, you know, look, talking about you know, the 1850s, 1860s. And yet, and yet, I, obviously, I didn't know them, you know, my great grandmother died, before, you know, eight years before I was born. And the, the, so, the, so the shortness of life is something I really feel. But also, I think in that Trevelyan quote, you also have that sense that, that these are people who are thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but what's going on in their minds is very, very different. So the, the, the appeal of history often is, I think, that they are people just like us, People fell in love and, you know, they got cold and they had stomachache just as we do. But and they died just as we will do. But on the other hand, they're also very different. And that trying to hold that tension between the, the otherness and the similarity is, I think, one of the joys of history. Yeah. And with historical fiction, there's also, I suppose, fiction as escape is a, is a well-recognised thing. And, and when, when it's another world that you can escape into, there's something consoling about that, I reckon. Yeah, and I think there's actually something consoling about awfulness in yeah. uh, fiction. One of the things I I started to write down a list of you know historical novels that I have most enjoyed, and it was quite revealing because it's not really a list of bodice rippers at all. It's a list of books about quite often awful things that have happened in the past. Yeah. But I actually find it comforting in some way does that, that makes sense my my life feels very much better very much more privileged and comfortable by comparison I suppose I don't know or maybe I'm just some sort of sadist I don't know but I, I when I was you know that I, I really enjoyed Richard Flanagan's The Narrow Road to the Deep North for example which is appalling um you know story of of the deadly Japanese labor camps in oh, Burma with Australian yeah. POWs working there but it's an amazing work of fiction you know that sort of thing have you read his did he write Gould's Book of Fish oh I don't know I haven't read Let it. Me just I haven't check. read anything else by him so I'll just check it was him just that uh while we're talking just so I'm not sending us on a, a horrible wrong term but I remember I think it is Richard Flanagan wrote a great book which you should read if you like him called Gould's Book of Fish and it's about uh, the prison island in Tasmania. So it's basically about a, a real-life convict called Gould who was imprisoned in Tasmania as part of transportation and used local materials to paint fish. And you can see them in the Library of Tasmania. They're real things. They're real historical artefacts. But he's written an imagined history of the guy. So it's both about history as a book, but also it takes you into the grimy, gritty, really bad world of a 19th century prison camp in Australia. That is just the sort of thing I would enjoy. The, fact, the funny thing, you know, I didn't realise that this was a connecting theme, but I was thinking the book I'm going to nominate today is about Indian history. And quite a lot of the books I have enjoyed, like, I don't know, Ice Candy Man, which is about the partition of India or, um, you know, Train to Pakistan, you know, the, the, uh, Kashwant Singh, the, again, about partition, like quite a lot of awfulness in these novels, though, it seems. <laughs> yeah, and it is him, Richard Flanagan, Australian. He wrote it in 2001. And I actually remember it because it's one of the first books I ever reviewed for the TLS, um, Gould's Book of Fish. And uh, it's really good. You'll really like it. If you like him anyway, 
uh, I think this is 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 seen as one of his great books. Okay, thank you for the nod. Yeah, yeah. Go after go after the after this and, and get it. Uh, any others you want to nominate books that you like on your list? What what else was there before we get to the one you've suggested? Oh well, I mean, I the leopard uh, uh, Giuseppe yeah. Tomasi's De Lampedusa. I mean, it, it was in contest for the one I'm going to nominate. I really, I mean, that's just an incredible. It's a very short book. It's a perfect book, and it creates um, the world of the sort of you know the dying world of the Sicilian aristocracy um, in the late nineteenth century. Uh, that I mean, the, yeah, it, it is. I don't know how to characterize it anymore. It, it is just a, a, a really fine, beautiful work. So, well, I, I, you know what? I've only ever read bits of that for something else I was writing. So I'm going to read that properly. That's a good. That's a good recommendation because it's one of those books that always comes up in the lists, doesn't it? And I've never given it as due. Uh, you are a Tudor expert, of course. So. You know, when people think historical fiction, maybe in this country, they will think of, I think, maybe two writers specifically, Hilary Mantel and C.J. Sansom. Do you think they're, they'd both be regarded as two of the, the great historical fiction or the most popular historical fiction uh, writers at the moment and, and both writing about the Tudor period? Yes. I mean, they're very different, aren't they? Um, so C.J. Sanson's Shard Lake series, the detective novels, they're lots and lots of fun. I, I really have enjoyed those. And actually, there is, there's a similar similar work by someone called D.K. Wilson. So he wrote um, the first one's called The First Horseman. And, you know, some sort of Tudor detective stories by people who know their, stu- their stuff. Yeah. Um, Hilary Mantel. I mean, we shouldn't. Men- we should mention Philippa Gregory, I think, as well, for Tudor fi- historical fiction. Yeah. But then Hilary Mantel has come on scene and obviously, as, you know, a succession of prizes has indicated, um, done something incredible with elevating the genre, I think. Um, and I think that's exactly right, because I, I think, I mean, C.J. Sansom is a, is a pure genre novel. It's two genre novels, like you say. It's a, it's a sort of detective and it's a sort of historical fiction. Uh, Hilary Mantel, I read all three of the, 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 the third one. Before that, I reread the first two. And what strikes you, I think the second one particularly, which I think the best of the three uh, bring out the bodies bring up the bodies bring up the bodies yes you know i did exactly the same though i was just thinking i read i reread them as well before the third one came along which was quite you know it's quite a work right? it, it's a, yeah it's a, exactly you don't do these things lightly i think what's so amazing about them is the is the urgency of it you know the problem with some historical fiction it's too oldy worldy where people are constantly there's lots of smells and there's lots of stilted conversation and you know that you're kind of in a museum piece Whereas with Mantel, it kind of has the urgency of a really modern um, thriller or a real modern taking inside the, the, the sort of the beating heart of, 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 a, of a character, uh, which you don't always associate with historical fiction. There's, there is something inescapably modern about how she approaches it, I think. That's really interesting because what you, yeah, that's very interesting because what you're sort of saying in the kind of filmic terms is that we've got the cross the quick cuts and cross edits yep. um, uh, of, of a modern um, approach whilst actually the story is old and I, I also think the other thing about it is that she plunges you absolutely into the world without ever saying we're looking at it from yeah. a different perspective but she does in but at the same you know she doesn't just tell you you know what a jerkin is or something along the way she yeah. doesn't say oh this is how the clothing laces up but she does however recognize its difference exactly that thing we were talking about similarity and difference so she will say you know, I think she said this in one of her wreath lectures, in the medieval world, a thing doesn't happen in, in 15 seconds. It happens in what they call the, the space of a paternoster, you know, the time it takes to say a prayer. Yeah, and, and it doesn't, those books are full of incident because they're full of historical incident, but they're not cheaply done. My other criticism of historical fiction, which I do consume greedily, so, you know, I, I'm, I, I love it, but when it's done 
cheaply. There's a, there's a line by an Elmore Leonard uh, character when he talks about historical fiction being full of rapes and adverbs. Uh, the, the idea being that, and you see this with some people where almost every 10 pages, something really grim and violent happens often to a woman to kind of mm. jolt the story along. And I, think, I, yeah. and I think that's often the case in when you go back two or three or four or 500 years ago, because there's a kind of an acceptance that, that life was very cheap then and therefore you can with some accuracy have these grim and violent moments. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, then history is just becoming a vehicle for people who want to write kind of, you know, slasher fiction. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the one I want to ask you about, because the TLS once called it, uh, Robert Irwin, who writes for TLS, said it was the best historical novel ever. I wondered if you'd ever read it, called The Man on a Donkey by H.F.M. Prescott. No, I haven't read that, actually, no. Uh, so it, I've read it. I, mean, I don't think it is the best historical fiction ever, but it's basically about the pilgrimage of grace. It's, it's about, um, which I'm not explaining for, for your benefits, and obviously you can explain for my benefit, but it's, it's, it's that time when um, it's Henry VIII, isn't he? He sort of wastes the North as a punishment because there's lots of uh, protests against it. Yes, so yeah, it's a massive rebellion in Lincolnshire and Yorkshire against Henry VIII because he's, big debate about why, but, you know, uh, okay. because pretty much because he's uh, become supreme head of the church and because of the beginning of the dissolution of the monasteries. And yes, the response is pretty brutal and, and this has has within it quite a lot of brutality in it uh it's well i mean it's good i mean it's definitely good i think hfm prescott might have been a historian herself so it, it could well be i think there's quite a lot of historical accuracy in it but we're not going to talk about tudor fiction uh now because the book you've suggested isn't that historical even it's it's within a generation or so what you're talking about T- tell us about the book Yes, I wasn't sure you were going to let me have it, really, because, um, you know, when I was studying history at university, this would have been considered politics, but um, history then stopping in 1945. Yeah. But this is um, <laughs> um, this is uh, A Fine Balance by Rahinton Mystery. And the bulk or the sort of present time in the novel is the emergency in India, which was 1975 to 77. And it, when Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, although she's never named in the novel, was given power to rule by decree. And there are a series of things that happened historically, like forced mass sterilization and press censorship, um, you know, mass political arrests, uh, a beautification program of clearing slums that form the backdrop of the novel. And we follow four characters, uh, a, a widow, a Parsi widow called Dina Dalal, whose uh, husband, died in an, uh, an accident on a, on a bike when going off to buy ice cream. Um, Ishvar and his nephew, Omprakash, who are Hindu tailors who uh, originally came from the Chamar caste, which is to say that they were born into a line of people whose occupation was as tanners. And Ishvar's father decided that he would have his sons trained as tailors, breaking with caste tradition and... Um, Narayan suffers horribly as a result of that. Um, and finally, our f- fourth central character is a student called Manek Kola, um, who's studying refrigeration and air conditioning. <laughs> and it's all set in uh, Bombay. Again, the city is not named, or Mumbai, but it's not named, but um, it's definitely the, the city we're in. And it is, for my money, I think, not only one of the best novels ever written, but I'd, I'd actually even say it's a sort of modern Tolstoy and that's a high price. Well, what, explain that because that's really interesting. Is it, and, and what do you love in Tolstoy that you see in this? 
So the the scale. So we're 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 looking at a large scale. I mean, it's not quite on the scale of War and Peace, and it's not as nearly as it's half as length of War and Peace. But it's um, and actually there are some similarities of parts of story of something like Anna Karenina. But it's also about the beauty of the prose and the combination of horror, um, terrible things happening, but also the, the, that we are approaching people through beautiful details that bring them alive. Um, moments of characterization or description that um, seem to take us sort of soaring. Um, you know, they're not exactly the same style by any means, but I think that there is something they have in common about revealing the lives of, you know, not very ordinary people in Tolstoy, but but um, but revealing historical lives through the detail, through the beauty, and also through the, the horror. One of the things I like in historical fiction is when figures from history are turned into fictional characters. I think there's a, there's a real thrill when, particularly when you get those very long saga-like uh, historical novels uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, things like by Doctor O or um, there's the, uh, Anthony Burgess Earthly Powers which has the sort of history of the 20th century in in, in a book and sort of Hemingway pops up and Mussolini and I, I quite I find that quite a thrill that someone has been willing to grapple with with a real person and a real uh, political issue or a real country where things are happening it's quite a responsibility the writer takes on though isn't it they've got to then deliver if they're going to do that Yes, and and one of the novels I read this year and loved actually was uh, Hamnet, which obviously prize winning Maggie O'Farrell's novel about Shakespeare's family. And another theme here of not naming, but Shakespeare's not named in it, as you probably know. Yeah. And but but the story of his family is being told, um, which is very daring, and <laughs> you know to do that. Um, and I suppose although we have very much the sort of grand scale of history, the things that are going on that affect our four central characters. It's not doing what some novels do, which is like the Mantell books, which is we've got a cast of known people whose letters we've got or whose, you know, we've got accounts about them. These are invented characters set against the past, but what they are doing is bringing the reality of historical circumstances and the effects that those had to life uh, and are you particularly interested in indian politics because um it, it strikes me that that could that can seem quite forbidding for people i mean i'm not sure many people will know one you, you talk about history uh you, at university stops at 1945 um history at school may even stop before that for 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 some people and i certainly have never done any form of Indian history. I mean, I've said on another podcast, I think the first time I ever learned about the Indian mutiny, so-called, was reading a, a, the Flashman novels. I was never taught at all about <laughs> yeah. that, that stuff. Uh, so let alone the post-45 history, or the post-47, I suppose, history of India. Do you think that's quite forbidding for some people? Or again, is that part of the joy of historical fiction, that actually you're doing two things? You're both enjoying a story, but you're kind of increasing the stock of information you know about. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, so I do have, you know, I must... Uh, confess an interest in India and um, I did do in I did study Indian history at university um, and, and you know made a sort of the career decision about whether I was going to carry on and do a doctorate in European history and French history and I did in the end um, or Indian history so I do I am interested in in, in India but uh, very much um, but um, I don't think that this should 
you know you don't need that to, to approach this at all um and what's i think so magical about historical fiction is it can take you into another world so, like for example i read um uh, endo's silence shushika endo's silence yeah. about uh japan and i had really didn't know much about japanese history at all and it was one of those things that really i felt opened up a world that i hadn't encountered or you know i didn't know anything about the burmese railway <laughs> you know during the second world war before i'd read flanagan so i think um i do think that and I would say with a fine balance, you absolutely you need to know nothing in advance. It, you, you will learn everything you need to know. But you'll know more when you've finished it. Uh, I once interviewed Dan Brown, uh, Susanna, which uh, you might say, why am I bringing up Dan Brown? Uh, and I'm going to bring it up as a contrast, really, because I don't agree with this at all. But it's an interesting point. I asked him about uh, his plotting because he writes these sort of historic, he writes historical fiction, of course, as well about sort of mad Catholic conspiracies. Um, and he also writes modern stuff, which contains lots of very dull facts. And, and the book I was interviewing him about had a reference to Uber in it. And it sort of said, and he got in an Uber, comma, which was the uh, self-drive cab firm founded in 1997 by venture capitalists and then did sort of three lines of Wikipedia-style prose to explain what was happening. And I, and I so asked him about that. And he said he liked to think that his books were filled with vegetables, uh, as in eat your vegetables, but they were kind of mixed in with ice cream. So you're enjoying yourself, but you're actually getting information without realizing it. And of course, when you read his books, you're very much not get doing that. You're reading often very leaden prose, which has this, these really weird paragraphs of fact in them. But at its best, you could make an argument that the best way of exploring history or getting your interest up in history is that combination of, of facts and information that might either send you to a book or send you to the internet to find out more. Yeah, I mean, I like to think that our reading habits don't have to be those of toddlers, you know, so we yeah. don't have to have our green skin. <laughs> um, uh, but I think you're right. Um, the, my great friend and historian, Dan Jones, always uh, uh, describes historical fiction and it's a gateway drug to history. And I think yeah. it is, you know, I think, it's like, I think it's what gets you hooked and um, I'm all for it. And I know, and I think that even about stuff that perhaps more purist people would think you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be endorsing, you know, I, I, you know, really enjoyed like Taipan or whatever, you yeah, know, the, yeah. even though I'm sure I know it's far, far from, <laughs> from historical reality, but it's the sort of thing that gets you interested. Well, I read, I used to read books by, I'm sure you've never read this guy because he's deeply out of favour now, but they were in my, what I found is when I, when I was a kid, I just read whatever books were in my house. So, yeah. so there were the house of my parents, which they probably got their books in the 70s. So my formative reading in the 80s and 90s was basically a load of books that people bought in the 1970s, for better or for worse. Yeah. There was a guy called Dennis Wheatley, who uh, used to be sell millions and millions, probably sold 50 million books in his life. But never doesn't get read now because his politics are somewhat suspect. But there's a whole series about the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, what he does in that is he basically, about every 10 pages, the central character will stumble across a, uh, someone and he'll say, oh, I've been out, of action, been out of action for the last three weeks. What's gone on in the war? And then <laughs> this guy would then just tell you over four pages the update on the Napoleonic War between 1801 in September and 1801 in November. And then it would be like big chunks of history. And to be honest, I really like that. I really enjoyed the fact that something was coming into my brain that I wouldn't otherwise access. And I think that's one of the great pleasures in life, maybe. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it, obviously, I think learning is one of the greatest pleasures in life, and I've 
in theory, try to dedicate my life to doing that. And it's a great privilege to do that. I think um, I think that, that perhaps there are more subtle ways of doing it <laughs> than chunks of exposition. Yeah. But <laughs> I still, I, I think I can see it in my mind's eye, these big chunks of exposition. Where I can't believe he's getting away with this, but... And maybe the, the editor was just like, he sells millions of yeah, books. Let's just let him say what he wants yeah. to say. Well, I think that's probably true of Dan Brown as well. Um, speaking of kind of uh, rank commercialism, this book, A Fine Balance, was chosen by Oprah and then it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Is it is it very commercial? Is it very Oprah, a very Oprah book? No, I actually, my mouth fell open when you said that. I had no idea. I'm sure Oprah's has brilliant choices, but I wouldn't have necessarily associated with her Oprah book club. I It's uh, it because... It, because quite a lot of sobering is a mild word for it, unbearable amounts of suffering happen in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily the first thing that you would think. I mean, I would sort of hesitate about telling my mother to read it because I think she might find it upsetting. Yeah, you know? really. So, um, but it's also uplifting. It's this amazing, It like it doesn't, it's not a book that dwells on the details of awfulness. It, it, you know, we're talking about the kind of sadism of some of the writing. And I... And, I, and it's it's just an incredibly uh, wonderful work. The, the, the title of Fine Balance in the end refers to, there's a sort of a copy editor philosopher who you meet about halfway through on a train. And he talks about the need um, to maintain uh, a fine balance between hope and despair. And it's true, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's, that, that's where we are. That's where we are now. It's constantly. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking of, of, of horror, then, shall I mention the one I, uh, the, the book I want to talk about briefly? Because yes. um, we were emailing about this. I'm not sure you, you, you've, you've had a chance to, to read this. but I've, had, I've, I've, had, I've made a, a good start on the first one, but it's a whole series. It is it? a whole so. series, yes. Yeah, so, so the book is Iron King by Maurice Durand. Uh, and it's the first of a whole series of books called the Accursed King series. And it's set in medieval France. Uh, and it sort of begins with the curse of the last of the Templars, uh, who was executed by Philip the Fair, I think, of France. And he basically puts a, puts a curse on his whole family and the Pope. This is all true. This is all historical. I think this is historical accurate. And then what happens to the family and the dynasty, the Valois dynasty, is all is basically the Hundred Years' War and, and war with England and pestilence and misery. And the book, the series, is basically an account of all that falls out from that curse by the last of the Templars. Um, so you started reading. Did you like it? So I loved the characterization um, and um, compelling and um, in, very engaging. It's you know it's a book you can gulp down. The, the moments that gave me pause were moments actually interestingly opposite to what we were saying about Mantel not othering things. There, were, there was a moment where which threw me out when we got a description of uh, uh, quite early early on about a, a bazaar and it was described to us. <laughs> you know this is what it would have looked like sort of thing and then we're told uh, philip the fair is walking through the mercer's hall which is now known as the Mer the merchant's hall and i was like i don't care what it's known as now yeah. like, you know what i mean i was like so there were moments that threw me out but uh they were that was they was that's a small and sort of minor quibble by comparison to how much i, I did feel that it was really enjoyable uh, and i don't know if you got to the bit it's really violent and there is a bit i don't want to be a spoiler here but it's historically happened where two young men are found guilty of having affairs with the princesses. Have you got to that bit yet? No, I haven't got to that bit uh, yet. Well, I don't want to read it, but... Well, no, actually, because I, I, I can see that that's coming, yeah. but it must be a few couple of pages. Yeah, it's on its way. <laughs> it's, it's pretty old. Uh, basically, this did happen, and, and there was a... It, it, it's, it's happened in... There's a scandal around it in, in real life. But what they do to the to the to these lads who get caught 
is pretty awful, as you imagine from sort of French medieval punishments is is pretty vile. And actually, uh, the reason this book, this book, these series of books, huge in France. Maurice Durand was a hero of the resistance, writing these, I think, in the 50s. Uh, and there have been two TV series of them in France. So in France, they're really canonical. And I think in England, they're not that well known, although they've been given a second life because George R.R. R. Martin blurbs them and he says they helped inspire Game of Thrones. So the idea of the sort of battle for power and the violence, the kind of inherent violence in it is an influence on Game of Thrones, which might appeal to some people, I guess. What do you particularly think you love about them? Why why have you chosen these? Because I think... Um, I love the characters in them. I think they're so brilliantly done. Philip the Fair. And there's one character in it. He might not be very much in it yet with you, but called Robert of Artois. Is he there yet? He's introduced as a giant of six foot, which made me chuckle. Yeah, a giant of six (laughs) foot. So he's this fat, big, he smells of leather and musk. Sort of, he's lecherous. He's Machiavellian. He's constantly, he's an anti-hero. He's constantly fighting with his aunt about a piece of land that he thinks is owed to him. She thinks he's owed to her. She's in it at the minute. And he goes around the place uh, and he's conspiring and he, he sort of, he's, he's desperate to get power. He's desperate to satisfy his appetites. And he's just this magnificent figure. And you can kind of, he kind of leaps out of the page. And there's this moment at the end. And the thing I love about it is Drawn has clearly fallen in love with this guy. He just thinks he's this most fantastic, charismatic figure. And, I, and he is, I think. And, uh, but he's following history. So Robert Artois is a real person. And what happens to him in the novels, uh, Duron can't change. He can't fix the court case. He can't fix what happens to him. And there's a bit in the end of the sixth book where Robert of Artois, in the historical record, dies. And uh, Duron has a, puts a footnote on the page. And I'll just read it to you. He goes, at this point, the author, compelled by history to kill off his favorite character, with whom he has lived for six years, is moved to a sorrow comparable to that of King Edward of England. The pen, as the old chroniclers say, falls from his hand, and he has no desire to continue, at least for the present, except to inform the reader of the destinies of some of the principal characters of the story. So basically what happens is he's written this six brilliant books of where you're absolutely taken to the heart of the historical record, these real people. And then the guy that he likes the most dies. He can't do anything about it. And so he just gives up. He goes, well, I better end the book then. I mean, that is incredible. And, well, there's two things. One, I noticed that, I noticed the footnotes already. I hadn't read any like that, of course, yet. But I had, I was like, this is the first historical novel I've ever read that's got you know, end notes with, right, here's some more details about the history, um, which, which I found fascinating. But also that question about whether people fall in love with their protagonists maybe it's true do you think that might be possible when they're writing historical yeah, fiction maybe it is. because something about um you know uh, so imagining my, because because you're also falling in love with going back into that period aren't you you're yeah. falling in love with indulging yourself in that that pure escapism of, of another realm of time you know well that was always the knock not a knock but the view of Hilary Mantel why it took so long for the third book to come was because she was reluctant to to let go of you know she she'd got in the head of Cromwell, and and I think she was probably reluctant to let go actually also uh, um, of the sources. So it's, it's, it is yeah. Cromwell, but I think you know she she she'd got so I mean this happens to all the best of us. <laughs> she got so um, deep you know knee deep in uh, neck deep probably in the the historical sources. They I mean they absolutely pour out of her writing. Um, and she 
you know, and it was hard to hard to put those down. You know, hard yep. to finally put the, to stop writing, and, which I guess why it's so long as well. And I think that's probably why I love these books so much because I think my heart raced when I was reading them because they're kind of familiar. And there's an interesting point where if you look at the sort of great historical novels or the big historical novels, so many are medieval, Susanna, which I think is interesting that we mentioned Tudor as a fertile period. I do think weirdly the medieval period attracts people, and I wonder whether that's because it's so far away that it is still like, it's very exotic, uh, but it's just got enough of a connection that there's still familiarity. Whereas as you go closer and closer, you're becoming more and more modern, and the Tudor period and the you know the Renaissance is happening, and all of that stuff's going on. Whereas medieval feels like often where people go because it's different enough. I'm sure that's right. And I think also it's about what survives from those periods. So obviously, as you go through history, we have more and more documentation on the whole. Um, and so I think with medieval history, my medieval historian friends will probably disagree, but I think that you have to do quite a lot more joining the dots than you do as you get further on in time. Yeah. And so that provides lovely spaces for um, the historical novelist to fabricate, <laughs> you know, to, to invent what must have happened between these two things. And I was thinking, many, you know, there's the book called The Cornerstone by a French writer called Zoe Oldenburg. Uh, there's The Corner That Held Them by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Their medieval books, uh, Name of the Rose by Echo. Have you read that? Yes, yes, I have. Yes, no, that was one. That's on one of my list. My list will put that in review. And did you also? Um, we're just naming books now, but yes, to Calais in Ordinary Time recently uh, by James Meek about the plague um, of the 1340s, the Black Death was is an incredible work as well. No, I've um, not read very, that. Is it good? It is a masterpiece. Um, it is written in three different. Um, registers of medieval speech which it sounds daunting and indeed it is slightly daunting as you start to sort of get your head around it but then it becomes kind of fascinating to I mean it, to, to learn this, these different registers and it becomes in the end this incredible spellbinding work yeah uh, the other thing that occurred to me when I look at the sort of list of great classical works is obviously people going to classical periods in the you know the Roman and Greek times um, and again, I'm struck by the fact that people sometimes might do that because there's more freedom in the past than the present. You know, it, it's striking that, that Mary Renault, for example, who I write about in, in the book, uh, who's gay, and it's quite hard to write in the 50s and 60s about being gay overtly. But if you go back to the classical period, there's a certain freedom that the history brings you because you can refer to a time that's not yours and you can always plead fidelity to the historical record for sort of snooty people who don't want you to explore certain things. And maybe history has a certain freedom as well as a certain responsibility. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. I'm sure that I'm sure that novels actually get, getting increasingly hard, you know, with people having, you know, mobile phones on them yeah. all the time and you can't, no one can get lost anymore. And, you know, yeah. there's like the, it, to, to write a novel set in the present seems to me one of the hardest things to do. Obviously, it's hard to write historical fiction. I'm not minimising the amount of work that goes into it, but I, I imagine there is some freedom in it as well. well. Can you imagine trying to write a novel now, a modern novel now, where the dominating plot feature will be everyone's just sitting quietly at home? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, yes, our lives are very dull, aren't they, in story terms? I was always encouraged by the fact that um, if you look at um, Shakespeare didn't write about the plague, really. Uh, Chaucer didn't write about the plague. The 20s, the modernists didn't write about the Spanish flu. Maybe there are some subjects that, that, that are too big to write about in the present. 
and maybe maybe they become too dominant so you can only obliquely refer to them rather than facing them full on yeah that's really interesting and you mentioned that i'd written the voices of neem which is based on sort of records for the 16th century protestants much of the time they're actually engaged in warfare against Catholic troops who at times, you know, surrounding the city. You can, if you go outside the city of Nîmes, you might get, you know, executed. And it's barely mentioned in the records. And I think it's because it gets up to a point where something is so quotidian, it's so much part of the sort of background noise that you don't even, you never foreground it. Yeah, that's what I'm sure. It's, it's like Jane Austen, you know, the Napoleonic Wars are going on in all of Jane Austen's books, but apart from the odd soldier popping up and, and buggering off again, they're not really mentioned as, yes. as if they're, they're, too, they're too big to handle. Uh, Susanna, we've reached the point in the podcast where you and I are just shouting names uh, of books to each other, which is, which, which, is <laughs> yeah. which I think is my favourite part of the podcast. But um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about um, historical fiction. And also I feel I've got a couple of recommendations to go off and, and buy, and I hope people listening will do the same thing. Well, me too as well, so thank you. One of the great joys in life is is recommending a book to someone else, isn't it? It certainly is, yes. I mean, the friends who... I have one friend who we, we, we strangely have a very, very similar taste in, in a whole range of things, and it is one of the, the best things in the world. That's why you're friends. It's why you're friends, probably. It certainly is, yeah. Susanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Stig. It's been lovely.